Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockett, Follow Your Different. And man, am I glad you're here because we have an incredible episode today. As a matter of fact, uh, we continue our legendary run of venture capitalists and authors. And our guest on this episode, Ted Dintersmith, is both. He's a former top technology venture capitalist who went on a mission to try to make a difference in education. And he's got a new book out that I love called What School Could Be, Insights and Inspiration from Teachers Across America. And here's what Ted did. He went to all 50 states, visiting about 200 schools. And he says he was stunned by the innovation that he found in many classrooms and many schools across the United States. This conversation and his book is a powerful look at what's possible in education from a guy who's smart, committed, and super thoughtful. I think you're going to love this conversation. Go to lockhead.com, check out the show notes and key takeaways from this episode, and subscribe to our newsletter. While you're on the web, why not check out my friends at NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud business system because NetSuite offers you a complete picture of all of your finances in one place in real time from your phone or your desktop or your tablet. And NetSuite customers grow three times faster than companies in the S&P 500, and you can too. To schedule your free demo of NetSuite right now and to receive the free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, check out netsuite.com different. That's netsuite.com different for your free demo and your free guide. Also, my friends at Splunk want to remind you that we are clearly living in the data age, and Splunk is on a mission to help bring data to everything, every question, decision, and action. Check out Splunk, S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D-2-E, as in data to everything, because with Splunk, you can turn data into doing. Now, hey-ho, let's go. I start the book by, you know, it was actually quite close to a real school I visited, but I didn't, I, I, I went to great lengths, try not to be negative on anything or anybody in the book. So I fictionalized it and call it Eisenhower High, which was sort of tied to an era. But this was one of these places. And, and there are so many schools like that today still, where on paper, it looks like the kids are doing really well, you know, good grades, good test scores, you know, reasonable to, to good college placements. And the, the point I make is that I think these kids not only are not being helped in terms of, you know, being prepared for a world defined and shaped by innovation, they're actually being impaired. And, and that really shifts your thinking. When you think that it's not just that school isn't helping kids, but it's actually going to damage their prospects. And why would I say that? I mean, I say that for two reasons. One is the measure of success in so many schools is aligned with a few narrow capabilities. And I'll often ask this question when I go visit a school. I say, if I put a kid in your school tomorrow morning who excelled at memorizing material, replicating low-level procedures and following instructions, I bet you that kid would be on your honor roll. And you know, the schools will like, they'll look at each other, they'll look at me, they'll think about it and they'll say, you know, you're probably right. And, and the point I make is that's exactly what machine intelligence excels at. You know, that's the first thing. The second thing is you just look at 
one of the things that gives me optimism is the characteristics you see in four and five-year-olds. You know, they're incredibly curious. They're creative. They think outside the box. They ask them all sorts of wild and interesting questions. They stare down failure. They learn at warp speed. All these great things in four and five-year-olds. Then I get to high school. When I observe high school classes, generally the only question kids ask is, will this be on the test? And when you think about, for instance, one of one of the uh, institutions I go after is the SAT. But, you know, you interview SAT tutors, and I talk to a fair number of them, and they say one of the most important things you've got to tell kids is don't be creative when you take this test. Don't think of unusual ways to go after it. Think really simply and formulaically. The second big piece of coaching advice is if it's hard and it's going to take you a while to figure it out, skip it. Yeah, you know, like, is that a great message for our kids? And so, you know, so when you sort of feel in your bones, which I, I do, that too many kids are being you know, told that they're not gifted because they don't match up to those narrow skills. Kids are being celebrated as gifted because they're good at things that aren't terribly relevant in life. And then most of high school, even K through 12 now, is around giving kids, you know, getting them slightly higher up on the queue in terms of college admissions. Whew, you know, it's, it's a very scary picture when you think about machine intelligence basically accelerating and, and replacing humans in anything that involves routine tasks. So, so let's go there because you spend, um, you know, there's a bunch of the points in the book that sort of go back to this and it's a giant aha. So I want to see if I can play it back to make sure I get it and, and go wherever you want to go with this. But essentially, by focusing on an outcome called test scores uh, and by telling kids exactly what you just said, what we're training people to do essentially is memorize and um, uh, replay information that we used to call knowledge. I don't know if it ever was knowledge, but information that essentially you can Google in five minutes or even worse going forward, some algorithm is going to deal with very rapidly. And so the skill set of memorize your timetables by way of example, um, Look, I don't know if it's important. You'll tell me if I should know my time tables. It probably is. But, but these memorization skills, this is it going to be on the test skill? Uh, is, and I got four or five questions and I tick off the right one. What you're arguing is the ability to study that, recall it, and plug in the answer on a standardized test, which is the sort of hallmark of what we're driving at in education, is something that a simple algorithm in most cases can accomplish. Is that the core of your argument or at least part of the core of your argument as to why we're teaching kids to do things that are useless? It's a big part of it. I, one thing that often gets misunderstood in that, in that in the, and I think you did a really great job of, of articulating the points I make, but people will then say, are you saying content's irrelevant? And, and that, the answer to that is absolutely not. But I think too often we jam lots of content down the throats of students and down the throats of teachers, by the way. I mean, and I, I have a great deal of empathy for teachers. They're incredibly dedicated and they're dealing with a lot of challenges imposed on them that they have no say in. But when you just jam content down the throats of people with no end or no purpose to it, some retain it in a short-term basis for a test. Others aren't as good at retaining it. But I find very few kids who two, three months later can remember much of it at all. And, and we kind of know that intuitively, right? I mean, when do you really feel you've mastered something? Well, you, you master it when you 
apply it, when you do something with it, when you teach others, if you just listen to it, memorize it, stay up all night, maybe take some Adderall, take a test and then move on, you know, it's, it's, what's the point, right? I mean, if it's gone in weeks or months or even days, even days for some of these kids, what's the point? And, and when I ask for evidence of real learning, you know, we put so much stake and so much emphasis and so much pressure on our kids to prepare for state-mandated exams, for SATs and ACTs, for AP exams. I say, hey, given the billions of dollars and millions of hours of time spent on that, how about a little evidence that what they've learned is actually retained two, three months later? That seems like an easy thing to spot check. Anybody up for doing that? Nope. And, and in rare cases where a school might do that, they find, oh my gosh, it, it's gone. It's gone. And, and so the question becomes, if we're filling every waking hour of our kids' lives with you know, an inch deep and a mile wide content skimming, and then test them on their basis to jam it into short-term memory and get it back, you know, are they learning? I would argue no. But I think it's worse than that because I think we're conditioning, we're training, we're teaching kids that the purpose of life, if, if most of their or all of their waking hours are devoted to school, and if the purpose of school is just jumping through hoops, maybe to look better to a college admissions officer, or maybe to pass an exam, or maybe to uh, get through the state mandated exams that might let you or block you from getting a high school degree. I mean, if it's all a game around jumping through hoops, what values are we imparting? You know, is, is it any surprise that kids can be jaded when they come out of school? Well, and it's it sort of, I don't know why this analogy in my head started, I don't know, somewhere about halfway through reading your book. And you'll tell me if this is right or wrong, but school is like a giant pie eating contest. How much shit can I cram into me that I will ex, you know, get rid of shortly thereafter, end of education. I mean, that's yeah. probably an oversimplification, but that's a lot of what's going on. Yeah, and, and you don't even get to choose what type of pie. All you know is more is better. Somebody's gonna come along, some, you know, the college board or the state legislature or some curriculum designing company, and they're gonna say, you know, the pie you need to eat is earthworm pie. Because we've got a lot of earthworms, right? We can measure, somehow we can, we, we're really good at measuring how many earthworms are in a pie and how many earthworms you, you know, like, it's crazy, right? We, we organize most of education around what's easy to test, you know, not what's important to learn. And, and you realize that if you encourage kids, if you empower kids, if you unleash the passion and dedication of teachers to let these students create bold initiatives, across a whole wide array of things. I mean, not just a nonprofit or not just something to make your community better, but, you know, great science experiments, uh, you know, a great historical interpretation, a documentary capturing history, uh, you know, writing something, writing a short story. or I mean, a million different things. There are a million different ways we can creatively express ourselves. If that were a big part of school, that's going to be way better for kids, particularly in a world where machine intelligence does everything routine. But, and this is the 72-point font, bold, you know, font, but, but if it's creative and different, that means you can't compare a kid in Santa Cruz to a kid in Topeka to a kid in Tallahassee. And, and 
okay, so what do we do instead? We say, well, everybody's got to study the exact same thing and take the exact same standardized test so that we can get this really dreary picture of how little they're learning on material they don't care about and in all likelihood will never use in their life. The story of bureaucratically driven and shaped education in America. Well, and frankly, the fact that the model was predicated on an 1800s model around essentially, if I read your book right, creating a factory worker. And so the skill set that we uh, value is, can you sit in a room? Can you do repeated tasks over and over and over again? Can you behave, et cetera, et cetera. As opposed to, to your point, how creative are you? How innovative are you? What are you naturally drawn to? What would you like to experiment with? Maybe you don't know if you like something, but maybe you're interested. So maybe we should try that. Oh, you always thought saxophone was cool. Okay, that's, that's great. Or you like to do puzzles or whatever kids like to do, right? And so maybe that gets me, and I do want to go, we'll bounce around, I'm sure, but I do want to underscore some of the key sort of what, in my mind, are architectural problems and structural problems that are, seem to be mostly predicated on this idea of testing. But before we go back to there, maybe we could jump to at least part of the answer is this peak idea that you have. Yeah. So maybe so, could you kind of walk me through the highlight? So if we sort of understand a little bit about the problem, we'll go back to some of those things. But, and then part of the solution is this peak idea. So may, explain peak to me. You know, in some level, you know, I go to these places and like the kids were just like, they had that bounce in their step and the teachers were so engaged. So in some levels, it was really easy to tell where, where things were really going well. But I sort of stepped back and I came up with this acronym PEAK. I'll kind of go back last to first, but the knowledge was deep and retained. The kids had a fair amount of agency. There was a fair amount of discretion that they could bring to what they wanted to pursue in their learning. I'd say ditto for the teachers, by the way. Um, the E was essential competencies. You know, the, the schools, the teachers, the parent community even, were really clear on what they wanted their kids to be good at. And by the way, that was never, you know, being good at filling out bubbles in a bubble test. You know, it was creative problem solving. It was collaboration, communication, critical thinking, citizenship skills, things like that. And then the final thing, which we touched on before, was purpose. You know, like, and it was so telling. I mean, you learn so much when you just interview kids at a school. And, and I'd always ask them, what are you working on and why? And in so many places, I mean, a stunning number of places, you ask a kid in the hallway, what are you studying right now? And they look like I just asked them, how do you say, you know, bamboo in Swahili? You know, it's like they, they're just a blank look. Like, what am I studying? I, I don't know. Let me, can I look at my notebook? You know, can I look at my backpack? But the why, why are you doing it? And, and so many times it's because I'm told to because it'll be on the test, because my parents say this will look good to college admissions. You know, a bunch of things that just erode a kid's sense of purpose. You, you do one hop over where the places that blew me away. And by the way, they, the reason I wanted to visit all 50 states, the reason I wrote the book in the way I did, presenting a great example from every state, is to really reinforce the point that this is being done everywhere. It's not just done in Finland. It's not just done at a school here and there. There are great examples all over the country. You can find something amazing in almost every school, certainly every community. You know, but it was, it was the learning was deep and retained. The kids had a big voice in what they wanted to learn. They were getting good at things that mattered to them as adults. 
And they had this deep sense of purpose that they were working on something that mattered, often something tied to the real world, often something they could explain was going to, in a way they believed in, was going to make their world better. And as I say, that's not just, you know, cleaning up trash in a playground. You know, that can be, I looked into this historical event that's always been of interest to me. I went back, I really understood what caused it. I interviewed people, I did my own documentary about it, something like that. I mean, and, and I could broaden and, and list a million examples. But, you know, you look at these settings and, and you just say, of course, you know, of course that's what kids should be doing in school. And I think, the, as I said before, the big issue is when kids are engaged in things and they're, they're doing things in their own creative and distinctive way, when they're getting good at something that maybe few or maybe even no other kid is getting good at, that's going to set up a kid to succeed in a world where machine intelligence does everything routine. But that is a kiss of death if you want to de- generate data that can compare the pace of progress for a kid or a school or a district or a state even against other kids or districts, schools or districts or states. And so, so I think it's kind of the existential choice is what's more important, measuring something that's irrelevant or empowering kids to learn something that's important. Well, and in your book, you say things like we have, you know, we have scaled failure in the education system. You say things like many people are quite capable of learning just not in school. Right. And how many people, I mean, you know, over and over again, we meet people that just, it didn't work for them. And, and if they can survive that and not have their confidence in, you know, I mean, that's the real issue. I always say that to parents. Parents will ask me a lot, you know, like my kid's struggling in school, what's the best thing I can do for them? And I say, make sure they don't lose their confidence. You know, make sure they know that they've got things they can be excellent at, because every kid does. But, you know, you can get a drumbeat in school of how you aren't proficient. And, you know, some kids have challenges in certain areas. It's a rare kid that's not going to be really good at something. You know, they all have gifts. They, they all have things they can, can do extremely well. The question is, shouldn't school's palette be broad enough that, that whatever lane is going to work for a kid, they can find that. They can discover it in the course of a school experience. Or should it be so narrowly defined? Should we call kids gifted starting at an early age? Should we take a kid that can add a bunch of numbers together quickly without a math error and say, you're the gifted math kid? Should we take a kid whose parents have been reading to them from age, maybe age negative eight months, you know, from the time they knew that that the mother was pregnant, they're reading to the kid in the womb, who suddenly has a fairly broad vocabulary at age four. Should we say, oh my God, that's an incredibly gifted language arts kid? Well, it's all bullshit, right? I mean, these are the most, these are, you know, in, in statistics terms would be called false positives or false negatives. We're not getting at what really matters. And that's why I love these places where kids are given a voice to, to find and create opportunities, bold and ambitious plans and initiatives that they carry out to make their world better. And if that were a big part of what kids do in school, you know, identify ways you can make your world better and create a bold initiative and then just stick with it until you've accomplished something you're proud of. And you had a progressive series of things you did that showed you were getting better and better at that. I say to people, would kids be more engaged? Absolutely. Would they be better prepared for life, particularly life where machine intelligence does everything routine? Absolutely. Would kids be developing important skills? Definitely. Why don't we do that? 
well, we don't do it because some bureaucratic committee says they might miss the progressive era. I mean, we were really worried that they might not cover trig proofs somewhere in their 12 years of school, as if any adult ever uses trig proofs. I mean, people obsess about these obscure academic pockets of content. And I say, if they, even if they cover it, if they're not retaining it, tell me again the downside of skipping it. <laughs> like, like, why do we obsess about that when they don't retain it in the first place? I think it's a fair question. You're talking to a guy who could have and should have skipped every single math class after grade three. Because math was over for me in grade three. And so I want to go back to something that you said. Um, you were talking about how almost every kid is good at something and they need to find that something. There's an aha around that for me, Ted, which is when you're a child, when you're developing, if certain doors or worlds are closing, my experience was, you know, the typical science and, and even reading and all of it, because I, I have a bunch of these things. I call it dysfuclea because I got a bunch <laughs> of calclea and a whole bunch of them. Uh, and so as those worlds were shutting down. Um, my, my mother didn't know, know about any of that stuff, given, you know, my vintage. She understood I wasn't doing well and she understood it didn't make any sense. And she also understood that I, I gravitated towards the arts. And so she found a public school in Canada, Montreal, Canada, where 50% of the curriculum was music, art, and drama. And what that meant was, um, essentially, as the worlds of math and reading and all these things were contracting, there was this other door that opened and that door was called drama. That door was called music and to a lesser degree in my case, art. Uh, and I had this very weird, and I, I've talked to a lot of dyslexics about this. And I think this is true for a lot of people. It's not just dyslexics because we're all different in a lot of ways. A lot of us don't fit in this weird bifurcation where uh, I was literally the lead in the play. And that's a big deal in a um, school K through 12 where there's one big play a year, right? And you get that and you're like the man on, you're literally, it's like the, it was like being the quarterback of the high school, right? Yeah. But at the same time, I'm literally failing out of all of the traditional stuff, like D's and F's and like a, a C is a victory for me in, you know, pick the subject, right? And so, so what's my point? What I look back on is, what if my mom, Jackie, hadn't found that school? What if I was in a traditional school where there was none of that and all I was experiencing, to your point, were doors closing, teachers telling me essentially that I need to apply myself, I'm not working hard, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think I end up a very different person. And then, not to get overly dramatic, but then I look at the research, for example, on um, dyslexia and lack of reading skill and math skill in our prison population and it's terrifying and so i guess this all leads me to a point which is um it sounds like what you're advocating particularly around this idea of agency is the ability for the child and the child's parents and teachers to help configure their education around yes some core set of things that we all need to learn but beyond that focusing in on areas of, of interest and of, of skill set and areas that I'm drawn to. But that's my interpretation with my experience. I'm very curious how you think about um, 
sort of particularly this agency thing and constructing or designing my own educational experience as a child so that I can be successful. Yeah. And one of the telling points you make there, and I think it's worth underscoring in spades is in your case, you were really, you know, you had a mother that was quite involved. She found a school that played to your strengths. You develop confidence and you get good at something that in a traditional education setting would be kind of shuffled off to maybe an after school club. You know, but but meanwhile, you're being called into the, the guidance counselor's office or the principal's office and said, you know, like you, you're not, you know, you're not going to amount to anything. You know, you're not smart. You know, like you, you're not applying yourself or you're not, you know, like you're, you're getting these this constant drumbeat saying in some ways you're not proficient, even though, boom, you go to a theater production. And as you say, that's like being the starting quarterback for a team that wins the province title. And, and you just say, well, wait a minute, I sure as hell am proficient. You know, I'm just not, not proficient on a bunch of stuff that A, I don't care about, B, that is tied to skills that won't matter, and C, that, that the kids are studying are never going to retain. You know, you, you mentioned math. I mean, I, I sometimes am not popular with math teachers because I go after it with a vengeance. Because I say, you know, like, w- you look at grade, easily grade 8 through 12 math in American schools. And, and kids, it would be a very, very rare kid in an exceptionally unusual class where I can't put photo math and the camera on my phone over a problem on the exam and get it right. You know, it is a bunch of low-level stuff that's mechanical, that is pattern recognition, that doesn't shed any insight into how you'd ever use that math or the higher-level concepts. But if somebody's, you know... Is curious. It's a very interesting thing. Photo math. All you do is show your put your camera over an expression, and it gives you the answer. And and you say, well, what are kids learning from that? And you know the 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 the, the answer. People will say, well, you know, math teacher will tell me, well, that it's important to learn the fundamentals of it. I say, you know, it's no more important than than having a kid memorize parts of a carburetor and say that's important to driving a car. You know, and by the way, modern cars don't even have carburetors, so that's how important it is. And then they say, well, it's teaching them how to think. And I said, well, you know, when anybody ever looks at it, it's really low-level pattern recognition. There's nothing conceptual and creative about it. You know, and then it's the last resort of failed education pedagogy, which is, well, it's helping them build grit. It's pointless. They're never going to use it. It's tedious. But if they just stick with it, it will help them build grit. And I say, hey, guess what? If they create something really bold and audacious, you know, something that they believe in, something that's important, and they stick with that, that also teaches them how to build grit, but it's authentic. It's powerful. And so, you know, you just sort of say, you know, and, and here's what drives me about this. Here's what really I think we need to step back and say is the enormous challenge in our society, which is, you know, you survived. For every one of you that survives, I would say there are 50 to 100 that don't. And, and they're piling up and it's getting worse. Can I just stop you there, Hansel? No. Can you say that again and then sort of help me understand what you mean by those numbers? Well, you know, so, so, in a case, you know, so kids that don't match up with, with the narrow metrics of success in school, which is a lot, right? I mean, we call one or 2% of the kids gifted and everybody else views they're kind of an also ran, right? And so it really and is. What the, percentage don't are square pegs in this round hole? Well, let's start with some basic numbers. I mean, of kids in eighth grade in America, 20% never finish high school. How, what are life prospects today for, you know, so that's 
almost a million kids. That's 750,000 kids a year leave the school system without a high school degree, generally in low-income circumstances. How are they going to do in life? Well, they're screwed over every which way from Sunday. Another 20% stop at the end of high school. But because we worship at the altar of college ready, most kids who go through K through 12 leave high school with no interesting proficiency. They're not good at anything that matters to the adult world. They could be. They could be really good at something that matters, but they're not because it's all college ready. And so right away, just off the if top, we stop you there 40, for a second. Yeah. That I think you just told me that essentially 40% are a failure in one way or another. Either they don't complete it or they complete it and they're not in any position to do anything useful with what they got out of their high school education. Is that what I heard you I, just say? I, I was with one slight modification. I would not call them a failure. I'd call the education system in a the failure. context of our yeah. current system. Those kids all could have found great paths forward. You mentioned incarceration. I, I was a, a backer of a film that'll be out this fall on public television called College Behind Bars. And it's about the barred prison you know, education program. And you see these young adults in jail. And one of the highlights is they get really curious about debate. And so the, the prison inmates debate the Harvard debate team and beat them. And, and it's even better than that, right? Because the prison inmates, you know, in prison, you can't use the internet. It's one of our brilliant things about incarceration is you can't access any modern learning technologies. You, they, they have to go to a library and dig it out of books. Is that in Harvard. state prisons as well as federal prisons or just federal prisons? I, I've, every time I visit a prison, I ask, and I visit, so I can't say for every state, but, but they say, you know, it's, well, they might get online, they might harass somebody, they might you know, who knows what? There are a million reasons. I say, like, you know, we got a lot of smart technology people here today. We ought to be able to figure that problem out, but we can't. And so, so these kids, but but the what the film College Behind Bars didn't do, which I really wanted them to do, was to talk about these young adults' experience in K through 12. Almost all of them dropped out. Almost all of them found school incredibly boring. Almost all of them were being told you're not very good. So they drop out. What do they do? They then deal drugs or something else, but mostly dealing drugs. They get caught and they get sent away. So now they're in an upstate New York penitentiary. You know, they're going to leave with a record. Their life is really, really deeply challenged. Yet you see them. Then the good news about this film, what I think is exciting is you see them when they actually get a chance to learn something they care about. When they take on a challenge, like you're going to debate the Harvard, Harvard's debate team. I mean, that seems like a very unfair competition. Harvard students against prison inmates. How could they? It gets better. I mean, it gets better because the topic that listen to this, this is so incredible. The topic that's being debated is should public schools have to accept uh, illegal immigrant kids into the public school system? And so you know what side prison inmates would want to take in that. They, they naturally, instinctively, everything about it would be those schools should accept those immigrant kids. You know, absolutely. Well, they get assigned the opposing view, that the public schools shouldn't accept illegal immigrants' kids. So what argument did they come up with? It's brilliant, right? It's brilliant. They say, by the way, where do the immigrant kids live? They live in poor America. They don't live in uh, Atherton. 
they live in, you know, a struggling community like Richmond, California. Those schools are already beaten down by a lack of resources. So their argument is if you make those schools take even more kids without giving them the resources, you're only further tilting the scales toward the rich kids in America with an education system. And they win the debate. I mean, it's purely brilliant, but, but it really emphasizes, you know, the potential that's just being missed all over our country. Because school is just plain boring. Kids don't see the relevance to the adult world and their right does not see the relevance. And, and it's all because somebody, you know, and I put a lot of blame on state legislation. I don't blame teachers. Teachers know this. When I talk to teachers about this, I'm never telling them something they don't realize. They know this and they live with it every single day. But state legislators, they, they, they have so much say in schools and generally are very uninformed. Not all, but many. You know, school you they're boards. generally uninformed? Uninformed, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, they, they just like, it's like, beat your chest. We're going to be tough. We're, we're going to do, we're going to do right by taxpayers. We're going to hold these schools and these teachers and these kids accountable. And so we'll put some money into these tests that we're going to make them take. Not enough really to have a good test, but enough to have a crappy test, but a test that gives us a number. And then when that number isn't any, any good, we can go after those, you know, those kids and those teachers and those schools as being failures. I mean, it's such bullshit. And, and I've been trying to get, you know, someday I'm going to find somebody that will take this on. But I say, I want somebody to organize a movement in their state where they insist that the state legislators take the tests they're cramming down our school's throat with a proctor and make their scores public. If a state legislature, which every state, 50 states in the country, you can't graduate from high school without passing algebra. Okay. How many adults ever solve simultaneous equations in their daily life? Basically none. So you think about the, the pain you're inflicting on a kid who can't get a high school degree because they can't complete a course that very few adults will use. I think that's actually criminally irresponsible. So I say, let's have these friggin' state legislators take the algebra final and tell us how they did. And, and let them explain why they got a 37 or probably lower, really. And let them explain, what, well, you know, state legislation doesn't really require this algebra, but Every other walk of life does. Well, it doesn't, you know. But I, I feel like when, when we insist that kids do something to get a credential that society really values, like a high school diploma, like a college diploma, if we insist they do something, we owe it to those kids. We owe it to society to have thought carefully about whether it's going to be useful in life. You know, you can't say that a kid can't get a high school degree because they can't complete algebra. When studies show only 15% of adults use even basic algebra. And, and I think 5% of the 15, you know, a third of them are high school algebra teachers, probably. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, like if somebody says we're going to require kids to get good at financial literacy, well, I say that seems thoughtful. I can see that. If we, if we like, said, this is going to be my next line of question for you. It's like, okay, so while we're off doing Chinese algebra over here, um, how come you graduate high school in this country and you don't know how to deal with a credit card or manage a, a monthly household budget? You don't understand how to save. You don't know what a fucking 401k no. is. Never mind why you might want to consider one, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have basic personal financial life skills, but yet we got to do this Chinese algebra shit over here. Yeah. Tell, you know, 
go figure on that. And, you know, when I talk to uh, so many young adults sitting on 100 to 150K student loan debt, you know, those answers are revealing. Well, you know, everybody told me I had to get a college degree and they just gave me the papers to sign and just signed them. And I didn't realize what compound interest was. And I didn't realize what happens if I go into default, you know, like I didn't understand what it means to never be able to declare bankruptcy and get rid of this stuff. I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. And suddenly I'm stuck with this lifetime albatross of 150K of student loan debt, probably knowing that it may be decades before I get out of it. But, but back to the key point, every state requires algebra. Only five states require high school kids to take even some financial literacy. And by the way, there's a ton of- I don't understand. There's a ton of fascinating math and financial literacy. Yeah, exactly. Maybe if you were teaching me how to balance my checkbook, and maybe if I started to get interested in that, and maybe I started to get interested in the stock market or investing or real estate or how people make money, maybe we'd go down that path and I might actually learn something. The other one I've never understood you know, we had Professor Scott Galloway on from NYU Stern. He's written this wonderful new book called um, The Algebra of Happiness. And one of the things he said with me was, and I think he's right, it's rattled around in my head, that um, this, uh, the spouse choice that we make is our biggest single choice. And that the upside of a good spouse and a good spousal type relationship is massive. And the downside is massive, kind of infinity on either side. And I thought about that. And I think I, I think that's absolutely right. I, I've, I've, I've had that experience in my own life. And then you sort of have this aha. You go, okay, so wait a minute. Oh, and then I'll, and then I'll make one other point and then I'll get to my question. And the worst punishment we give human beings is this thing called solitary confinement, other than physical torture. Although you, are, you could argue that's physical torture. The thing about the solitary confinement that blows my mind is, oh, wait a minute, you and I as human beings need each other so badly that the worst punishment you could give me would be to lock me in a room alone by myself for an extended period of time. Okay, so if you take the Galloway comment and you take the solitary confinement aha and you put them together, the aha that I have is, hey, wait a minute, a gigantic and maybe the most, but certainly a gigantic part of having a successful, productive, meaningful, happy life is our ability to build strong, enduring, meaningful relationships with each other. Yes? Yep. Uh, what percentage of uh, K through 12 education is focused on that? You know, not only, I mean, it isn't 0%. It's probably some negative percentage, right? If, if that makes sense. It, it, you know, because what message do we get to kids, you know, give to kids is we, we tell them out-compete your classmates on studies that are almost a hundred percent individual, you know, so, so, you know, spend more hours during the summer on Khan Academy so you can get further on math. You're never going to use than the kid next door. You know, it's like, so it's like, not only is it not teaching collaboration, not only is it not fostering deep relationships, it's actually like the antithesis of that. And and so, so you say like, why are we so surprised that they, that a lot of young adults are, you know, cutthroat, self-centered, you know, like not to, to dump on investment bankers, but, um, you know, it's like, that's, that's the, the environment. That's the set of values we impart to them. And, and so you're right. It, you know, so many of the things, I mean, it sort of set me on this path that was back when my kids were in middle school, when I got this note from the school they were at, that they said they had a new initiative to teach kids important life skills. 
And initially I was super enthused about that. I said, that's a really good idea. And then I started to think, well, wait, wait a minute. Like what, what's the point of school if it's not to teach kids important life skills? I mean, like what more, what, what higher purpose could there be? And, and I started looking really hard at what they were doing. It was really the, the inflection point in my life. I started looking really hard at what they were doing. And I found most of what they were doing is irrelevant. And the rest was actually going to damage them going forward. It was actually anti-life skills, right? You know, don't challenge the system. Don't come up with something unusual. Don't, uh, you know, ignore an assignment to do something you think is more interesting. Don't, you know, don't, don't, don't. And, and you just say, wait a minute. The other one that all. drives me crazy is be better, not different, right? Yeah, yeah. We're, right. we're all going to compete in this box. And your job is to be better than Susie and Jimmy next to you, as opposed to say, hey, fuck you and your box. I don't, I'm not interested in this. I want to play guitar or whatever it is I want to do. Yeah. Right? yeah. There's a saying I love, which is if you want to win an Olympic gold medal, invent your own sport. And, and yet, how many people invent their own sport? How many people hated school, got a lead in a role in a production, got really comfortable in front of people, create a great podcast? I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm talking to you. You created an incredible, your own sport, and then thrive at it. But that's not what happens in school. Think of, you know, think of the exact opposite, which is SAT test prep. Millions of kids studying the same stupid content the rich kids getting really expensive good tutors and the poor kids getting screwed to take a test where nothing on that test is related to what's going to make you a successful adult and the bullshit college board talking about how important this is, how it's building grit in kids or who, who the fuck knows what other reasons they have for justifying their existence, by the way, as a nonprofit yet endless hours and volumes of money dumped down the black hole of SAT test prep. And I just look at that and say, that is tragic, you know, and it's, and it's sending this message to kids that, that you're as smart as your SAT test score. And by the way, that's often sticks with you. I mean, I talk to adults, you know, two, three decades out of school, where in employment situations, people ask them their SAT test scores. I mean, it's like, you got to be kidding. Um, but it stays with you. And, and yet, and I always encourage people to do this. Go look at the questions. Look at the questions on an exam and ask yourself, if I work really hard to be able to answer this question, is that going to give me a life advantage? And I think that the answer over and over again on something like the SAT or, you know, AP courses where you go to the bookstore and you look at shelves, shelves of AP flashcards or, you know, the state-mandated exams are actually the bottom of the education barrel. You look at the question, you just say, well, this is bullshit. I, I never use this as an adult why would we be pushing kids so hard to be good at something that we know we never use as an adult? And yet so many people just assume it makes sense. I mean, that's what just kind of floors me. You know, I'll, I'll meet so many people that think it's really simple, right? I mean, here's, that, here's what we need to do in education. You know, higher test scores, more kids graduating from high school. If we could just manage to get every kid going to four-year colleges, we'd be beating our chest saying we've, we've really excelled. And I say, like, you're just assuming everything that's going on in these schools makes sense, but it, it doesn't, you know, and, and you, and the other thing they'll tell me, by the way, a lot of, I had this conversation two days ago. Somebody said, well, you know, like they always seem so informed and authoritative, but they said, well, you know, our schools will never innovate because of those darn teachers unions. 
And I say, well, you know, that's interesting. But, you know, actually, I write these books calling for radical change in our schools. And you know who loves these books? The teachers unions. You know who made me? I was like the only, only the second person ever to get the, the NEA Friend of Education Award. I got it last year. Only the second person with any kind of business background. The other guy started the Discovery Channel and, uh, you know, made money off of his stuff. I lose money off of mine. And, and I say, like, you know what? That They just want school to make sense. They just want school to be something that gets kids excited where they're trusted to do their job. And, and you know, like, that's what we need to do in our schools. And, and so, I, you know, it's like when we oversimplify, we're selling short the future of our kids. And then what really worries me is as, as they come out and as millions and millions of adults are sort of not prepared, you know, actually anti-prepared, they feel cut loose. And what happens in a society when machine intelligence gets better and better and millions and millions of adults don't have a whole lot to offer? I think that's where we're seeing liberal democracies facing crises, not just in the United States, but broadly. Well, this is a dot that you connect powerfully, which is, you know, part of the problem in the United, excuse me, in the United States today is uh, we are not, um, we are not preparing our kids for life. And you talk about how schools and parents uh, are sort of playing under this paradigm of they want to be indispensable to their kids as opposed to make their kids standalone. And I just read an article. I wonder if you saw it, Ted. Uh, it was a couple of weekends ago, I think now, in the New York Times about how kids that are graduating high school coming into college are so ill-prepared for college that colleges now are having to adopt a whole set of new services, whether it's to deal with depression and increased suicide rates or the fact that they can't manage a, a, a textbook, or, or I'll just say what's on my mind. It's going to make me sound grumpy, but, or they can't find their ass with both hands because they've been helicoptered up the kazoo by everybody. And also they've never been alone. They've never been in an environment. Kids don't go to the playground alone. Kids don't play outside alone. They, there's never, when you and I were kids, we'd go to the playground. We wanted to play ball. We would pick teams and we would organize and somebody would call balls and strikes and we would argue that that wasn't a strike and we'd have to you know, deal with that. And kids self-organize. I was fucking self-organizing shit like that at five, six, seven years old, right? And of course, today, there's never, uh, there's never a situation where a child's not without a parent. And so I, I just found it stunning that, that colleges now have to develop all these services around mental health and basic life skills because Sally and Jimmy have never been anything other than helicoptered by both teachers and parents. And so it just, all this stuff, candidly, it makes me a little depressed. It's like the Western uh, American adult is the only species of anything on planet Earth that isn't preparing its young for success in the wild. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll build on what you just said. I mean, it's like not only did we do it at age five, but we did it at age 15. You know, like it, I, I think when I was in high school, I still had a lot of unbooked time each week. I mean, just like wide open, do whatever the heck you want. I mean, I did a little bit of homework, uh, you know, obviously the school hours, but it wasn't the, you know, today's kids, you know, particularly in the high pressure college, you know, obsessed communities, they have like 125% of healthy waking hours booked for them in advance of every week. I mean, they have no free time, negative free time. And so that has changed. A friend of mine, Posse Salberg, who really architected Finland's 
huge transformation and progress in education. Just you know, released a book called "Let the Children Play." Don't you know in Finland, in some ways, their tagline. I always joke their tagline should be "Study less, learn more," and the U.S. is "Study more, learn less," and in Japan, it's "Study way more and learn way less." Um, so there are a whole range of national strategies. But you know, you, you look at that; it's really we because we've made it so intense because the stakes have become so high, and you know, the parents, you, you know you know, what happens, right? I mean, how many kids, when they get to college, still have the parents texting them reminders of essays due? Send me your essay, I want to edit it. Parents protesting grades with professors. Parents picking the courses for their kids. Parents picking the majors for their kids. And and one of the anecdotes I have in my book, which is true, is an employer said to me they were interviewing and had scheduled an interview with a graduating college senior. They get a call from the senior's parent. The parent says, my son can't make the interview next week. Would it be okay if I come instead to talk to you about my son? <laughs> like, that's the level it's gotten to. But I, I also think, now, now, and that's all, and it's easy to get really concerned, frightened, depressed about all this. And I, and I do think, by the way, I'd add, you know, you, you go to these most selective colleges, honestly, nobody thinks they belong. You know, the kids that grew up in well-off communities think, well, I got here because I had an advantage because my family or my community had lots of resources. The kids that get in from low-income communities think, well, I got here because they made an exception for me to accept low-income kids. The kids that get in for sports say, well, I got here because they wanted some athletes. You know, kids that get in because they play an instrument, you know, like everybody thinks that they got in because they were, somebody made an exception. And, And the level of, you know, it's kind of, mental challenge, you know, like, like the mental health on college campuses is not a pretty picture. And, and I think it's all around this high stakes, you know, kind of winners take all, uh, you know, I did this film, you know, the director is Greg Whiteley called most likely to succeed. That's, you know, was just did great in film festivals, Sundance and a bunch of others. And then I turned down Netflix and we went directly to school communities, like 10,000 communities have screened that film. But the film opens with Greg's daughter in fourth grade at a parent-teacher conference where the teacher's talking to the parent. His daughter's in tears the whole time saying nothing. And the issue is she has lost interest in math and doesn't see how it's relevant. And the teacher, of course, explains that, you know, this is helping you build grit, you know, like perfect. And, and, but you realize that around third, fourth, fifth grade, a lot of kids lose interest in school. And I think for good reason. Because we decide, instead of when they're really young, letting them learn what they're interested in, we decide we now know what they should study. So we're going to tell them what they have to learn instead of letting them tell us what they want to learn. It's so a lot of, particularly well-off families, but a lot of families then enter into this Faustian bargain. Starting in fourth, fifth grade, they say, yeah, I know it's not interesting, but if you don't get good grades, you won't get into the right college. And if you don't get into the right college, you won't have a good life. And then they'll say, you want to get into college A or B? And heaven forbid, if you go to college C or D, you know, you do not want to go to college C or D. You want to go to college A or B. And, you know, fast forward. And that's what they just, it's like over and over and over again. So by the time the kid gets to 11th, 12th grade, they're applying to college A and B. And maybe they toss in college C as a safety. And then it's so intense and the stakes are so high, they get turned down by A and B. The only school they get into is C. Or maybe they don't get to any school. They feel like failures. They've been living their parents' dream for what school. They've learned nothing of consequence in, in K through 12 and actually lost their creativity and curiosity and audacity all to the, you know, 
to the to the detriment of their future. And and when they get to the college, they don't feel like they belong. And then the colleges say they're not prepared. And it's like, so how's this working? Like, you know, you got to step back and say at some important level, we have totally lost our way with this. And, and so there are two problems that I see you anchoring to in the book. And if I if there's more, help me with it. But the the, the way I synthesized sort of the architectural problem um, was number one, um, this testing, this business of we're going to have universal or standardized tests all across the country. And, and so the math test in Santa Cruz is the math test in, in Louisiana, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's standardized testing. And then the other one that um, is deeply tied to that, and you talk about No Child Left Behind, is funding. That funding is in a large part tied to how well they do on tests and therefore how successful they are at getting into colleges. And, and that those two things, funding around testing and the, that the whole purpose of the school is to have you do well on a test. Those two things seem to be sort of the key architectural problems you point to. So I guess my I, question A is, did I get that right? And, and question B, is there more to it or anything you want to shine a light on around those two architectural problems? Yeah, those, I think that exactly in terms of the architectural problems, if I had to add a, a third aspect of this, it would be that our kids' lives are consumed with a bunch of content that some committee defined that, that we, you know, a lot of schools say they're preparing kids for a career in college. They aren't. It is a bunch of college-ready content that feeds into an AP flow and really is useless later in life. And, and I'll often say to high school seniors, are you good at anything that the adult world values? And the answer is for almost every high school graduate, and certainly for the ones who drop out of high school, they are not good at anything the adult world values. The, the point of optimism, and the reason I think that families, students, you know, schools even, ideally districts and states, the, the really compelling upside here is what happens if you just go rogue a little bit? What happens if you just say, fuck, I'm not going to have my kids study iambic pentameter and factor polynomials. Let me just swap out. I, I'm pitching, you know, like it's, this is the story of my life, right? I grant money. I don't charge anything for what I do. And I try to convince people to let me fund them to do something. You know, and it's, it's like, sometimes they do, sometimes it's frustrating. But I'm pitching a state right now that's got huge education challenges. And I say, what if we just, I, basically I say, give me a motivated student, give me the equivalent of one elective during a school year, some friendly opportunities within the school ecosystem, and then a summer with some coaching from a mentor. And I will have you produce high school graduates that can make easily two times or more than minimum wage. High school graduates that could pay for college and make save money during the year if they choose to go to college, but that would be off and running with careers independent of college. Nobody believes me. You know, like they say, oh, that's, you know, like everything that's there is so indispensable. I say, well, wait a minute. And I'll, I'll, I'll show them the kind of basically the body of what most kids study in high school. You know, two years of a foreign language they're never going to use. Four years of math they're never going to use. Skimming through a bunch of history they forget, you know. Maybe if they're lucky, they're reading some books they care about. Often they're told what they have to read. Maybe if they're lucky, they get to write a lot. Often they don't. Um, 
you know, some science where it's mostly formulas and definition. I'd say like, A, I don't really buy the fact that that's so indispensable. But in my book, I talk about some examples. I'll use one just because it's an easy one to relate to it. But it's a, a young woman who would not have finished high school in Vermont. The reason she wasn't going to finish high school, she couldn't pass algebra. Vermont, to its credit, has this thing called branching out that lets a school or a district swap out an obsolete requirement for something more interesting. This young woman, in low-income circumstances, was really artistic. Her passion in life was art. How many parents say, oh, you, you can't be an artist. You're never going to make money. You, know, you need to pick a practical career. You hear that all the time. What did she do? She went to her school and said, could I swap out, get rid of algebra, and replace it with website design? The school was intrigued, but they said, well, we don't have any teachers here that can teach you website design. She says, I don't care. Give me some time. I'll teach myself website design, but connect me with some friendly opportunities like an after-school club or a sports team or a fundraiser we're doing. And let me kind of cut my teeth doing some websites for those friendly internal functions. Then I start to have a portfolio. And then if you take that kid and give them a summer where they get good at knocking on doors, doing the research, right? Go, go around your community, look at all the small businesses and see which ones have good websites, which ones have bad websites, and which ones have no websites. The no websites and the bad websites are great prospects. And you say, oh, you know, and then I say, you know, by the way, I can listen to 25 things like website design that kids could get good at with an elective, with friendly early experiences in a school context, and with a summer with a little bit of coaching on how to create an entrepreneurial career. And this is not entrepreneurial in the sense of starting Facebook. This is creating an entrepreneurial career. And all these parents that are so obsessed about their kid getting into certain colleges, when I really push on it, I say, well, why? And they'll say, well, you know, if they don't get into this college, they're not going to get a good job. And I say, well, you know, like, just think about the fact if they could get actually a, have a great career immediately after high school, even during high school, even during middle school, like, wouldn't that take an enormous amount of pressure off the whole fucked up system? And they'll say, you know, but it's a hard sell. People just say, oh, that sounds really different. Um, I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> like, and I say, well, wh what do you have to lose? One friggin' elective. You know, like, uh, uh, you know, how many kids do I interview who take in two years of Spanish? And I'll ask them at the end of the second year, you know, like, como se llama? And they act like I'm speaking, you know, in Hindu or something. It was like, I, I mean, that's not such a high price to pay. Por favor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> bingo. <laughs> Uh, you know, the funny thing about the story that you just told, it is literally almost exactly the story of an extraordinary young entrepreneur who happens to be a dreamer, the child of, uh, of undocumented uh, immigrants to our country. And he didn't have any of those advantages. He wanted to go to college. And so he started a company building websites. He did exactly like you could have been talking about Diego Corzo. It was exactly yep. what he did because he had no choice because he had no money and he had to make it work. <laughs> yep. it's, it's right there. I mean, I'll talk to people in the world of education. I'll say, well, just take a look at Upwork. Nobody's heard of Upwork. I say, well, you know, like it's worth looking at Upwork because these are all skills that people are willing to pay for. And if a kid gets good at that, the way you pick somebody on Upwork is not where they went to college or what their high school GPA was or what their SAT scores were. It's their portfolio and their customer references. And, you know, I say to people, 
like imagine if you had here's here's a different one a motivated high school kid who today got good at slack well you know can a motivated high school kid get good at slack if they had some friendly early you know like help a club use slack help a department use slack help a school administration use slack help a raising to raise money yeah, to yeah, yeah. or blah blah yeah. When you go to Upwork, the going rate for Slack experts is 45 to 60 bucks an hour. <laughs> you know, it's like, holy moly. And, and, and you, know, you, you know that if you waited for AP workforce productivity to come out as a course, it'd be based on you know, blueprint sheets or something with pencil and paper. I mean, they, they, they'll never get to Slack in time because by the time they got to something like that, we'd be three generations ahead in tools. But, but so many colleges, you know, I, I, here's a sacred cow. I, I often say, I don't buy the fact that, that it's all that great an idea for kids to learn to code. People say, what, what, how can you say, you know, like you're a venture guy, how can you say that? And, and the reason I say that, it's not a bad thing, but I find so many high schools that are really traditional where they say, yeah, wait, we're now a 21st century high school. We have AP computer science. You know, it's like, okay, good. And, and it actually turns out it's really hard for uh, a teenager to get so good at coding that they can turn it into meaningful summer employment, that they can actually turn it into 30 bucks an hour or more. I mean, if you're a company, if you want custom code, it's probably something important to you. You're not going to take a chance with a high school kid. But if you're like a local mom and pop store with no website and a high school kid knocks on the door and says, I'll do it and you love it, will you pay me 500 bucks? And they'll say, Hey, yeah, that's kind of cool. Well, yeah, we'll do that. And so it's not so much developing the, I had this discussion with, with the, the founder of Squarespace a few months ago. And I said, like, how many middle and high school kids could get great at developing websites? He said, lots. How many realized they could turn it into great entrepreneurial careers? He said, very few. But, you know, for every 10, 20, I mean, let's say Squarespace has 100 coders. Wix and Weebly might have another hundred. I mean, so maybe those three companies combined have 300 people running the code for websites. Well, how many jobs are there out there using those tools? Tens of thousands, right? Tens of thousands. It's using the tools. That's the enormous opportunity. So I just say like, this is the lowest of low hanging fruit. We're a kid that's trying to escape poverty, a kid that's finding their path forward, a kid that wants a door opener. Maybe, maybe a kid really wants to be an auto mechanic. Well, you know, if they can do a website, they've got a great reason for that auto repair shop to hire them. Or maybe they want to be a policy person. Well, well campaigns would love to hire somebody that, for instance, a different, different field, social media campaigns. Same thing. You know, like yeah. kids can get yeah. really good at so designing and implementing social media campaigns. And so you talk about this. You talk about entrepreneurship in education and the lack thereof. And you talk about um, uh, apprenticeship as well. And so, you know, your book, while defining the problem, I think in a very powerful way, I view it as a book of hope. You you profile legendary teachers in schools all around the country who are, who are doing things with kids inside this fucked up system that, that just sound incredible. And then you talk about a lot, you know, this, this thing about agency has been rattling around in my head ever since I read it in your book. And then agency to me and apprenticeship sort of go together. And so I, I'm curious if you could sort of sh shed some light, Ted, on, you know, 
What do you see as the path forward based on on what you learned in in your year of uh, adventure around the country yeah. and talking to all the particularly the amazing folks who lit you up? Well, you know, one of the things to be optimistic about. I mentioned before, fourth and four year olds, five year olds, they have the, the essential character traits we want. You know, we just have to stop screwing that up. That's the first thing. Second, our teaching force knows what to do. You know, this isn't something. You know, when they read my book or they see my movie. They're never saying, oh, my God, I never thought of that. What they're saying is we really appreciate somebody from business who actually took the time to go out, observe things, talk to us, get a sense of what our life is like, and and somebody that recognizes when we're doing great work. So we know what to do. That's another point of optimism. The third is, as opposed to climate change, where an individual can do enormous positive things, but if the rest of the world doesn't do it, you know, I don't know what, you know, like we need a lot of people working together on climate change, you know, with with better forms of education, with learning, like we just mentioned, like unleashing a kid, get good at something that you love that lets you immediately create a great career path. You, You know, any family can do it. Any young kid can do it. Any class can do it. Any school can do it. It's actually more to, to my roots as a venture guy. I mean, adventure, I used to love it when 99% of the world was wrong and I could find that person that was right and back them. You're like widespread stupidity was a good thing in venture. Um, and there was a lot of it. Um, in education, I find much of my life right now is trying to, to get that 99% to think differently because if, if only a few percent thrive, you know, if you're, if you're lucky to be in the world of technology startups, or, you know, they, if it's a few that do really well and the rest are left behind, that's deeply disruptive to the future of our democracy. So that's my and mission. One of the points I, I take away from your book, and you sort of say it, I'm not sure how much you wanted to punch it home or not punch it home. So I want to ask you about it is, if the education model we have today is predicated on the 1800s producing factory workers and sort of the model school is an Eisenhower uh, high school, as you've defined it, um, then what you're really calling for is a, a complete transformation in what we think of as school. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I've actually, so the last several years of my life, I've been working on, so what's a change model that has some prospect of working? And, and this is another thing I think is a source of optimism. And so, you know, when my film came out, it shows a very different type of learning. It shows students working collaboratively on projects with teachers trusted to teach to their passion and expertise. People see the film. They say, oh, God, that sounds wonderful. We, we go out of our way in the film to say, don't copy it. You know, everybody should do what works for them. Don't copy what somebody else did. And I sort of for a while thought, well, people just figure it out. You know, like that's the challenge and the fun is create your own distinctive learning environment. And and I've sort of learned a couple of things. One a few people would say they'd see the film and say, we're changing everything. We are on this. We're going to change everything next week. And then like two months later, they call back and they say, God, that was a disaster. You know, because that's not the way existing systems change. But I did as I traveled sort of observe places that seemed to get it right, that seemed to have change models that made sense. And so that's been reflected. I've got this resource. We, you know, it's free open source resource called the Innovation Playlist. But it's sort of a small steps lead to big change. It's sort of permission and celebration based instead of top-down central planning. 
it tries to make these small steps that transfer more of the responsibility of the learning to the student and align more of the learning with the real world. And it's got some resources that can kind of get your school community excited. And I've been using that. I've got these initiatives I'm sort of involved with where I, I make some grant money and visit a lot, but in three very different states, Hawaii, North Dakota, and Virginia. And, you know, there's some really great things going on. And once, one of the things I think has been true is that if, if you're that one lonely innovative teacher in a school, you can kind of get worn down. And if you're that one innovative school in a community, you're viewed as kind of the alternative school for those kids. But if you can shift that so that there are five, 10, 15 innovative teachers in a school, it becomes contagious. If three, four, five schools in a community start to do really interesting things, it's contagious. And we found that if we have this small steps model where we, and we explicitly say, this can't be something where the, for instance, the principal says every teacher has to do this. We, we say, which teachers would be up for trying this? And we have these great short videos that bring it to life. And, you know, I'll give you an example just to make it concrete is one of our resources is the thing we call curiosity time. I talked, you know, at the start about Doug Bergman, what interesting questions did you ask? Well, you know, it turns out as I meet, was meeting with lots of educators, I'd ask how many of you set aside dedicated blocks of time for kids to think about and come up with their own thought-provoking questions? Tiny number. I'm thinking it might be half, two-thirds. It's like less than 5%. So we just say, would you be willing this month, some of the teachers in the school this month, to set aside 20-minute block of time, whatever the kids are studying, for a kid to have a few minutes on their own to come up with thought-provoking questions, and then work, join two or three other classmates, trade their notes on their questions and sort of distill down two or three questions on the minds of the small group and then present them to the entire class. And you find that so many kids don't want to ask a question because they think it might be dumb. The best questions are always the questions that stand some risk of being dumb. But if you do it in that safe way, you get some incredible questions. So that little tiny step where initially schools might find six teachers would do it. But then at the next faculty meeting, they'd say, oh my gosh, it was so interesting. It was so easy to do. And then maybe the next month, 12 teachers, 15 teachers, and then it builds. But, but the other thing that I think is interesting is, you won't be surprised, where do we get the very best questions? Kindergarten and first grade. Where, where is it a huge challenge to come up with thought-provoking questions? High school. Well, what's that tell us about what we're doing to kids in school? And, and, yet, and yet, there's so much insight to be drawn from a 20-minute block with high school kids where the only question they collectively came up with is, will this be on the test? We know that they need to get better at that. We know adult organizations want people who ask great questions rather than come up with formulaic answers. And so those small steps build them because then we say, try a Socratic seminar. Let students debate each other. Well, what questions should they debate? Well. Curiosity time. There's some great questions. We say, give kids a class period this month to go deep on something they're interested in. Well, what would they be interested in? Well, they came up with their own things in curiosity time. And so we've got these suggested sequence of steps. And as I say, I'm so, I'm, I'm really encouraged by what's going on. And then we believe deeply in video. So we're capturing, and I make these micro grants. And so if a classroom teacher, you know, you know, this is worth elaborating on. So, so I was in, we're doing this thing in Virginia and we got Initial wave is 26 districts. We're adding another 25 in October. They are so excited. I gave a kickoff for one of the poorest districts in Virginia, Hopewell. And I'm describing this. 
And they come up to me and they say, well, guess what we did last year? And this was brilliant. And these are the kinds of innovations happening in schools that just get me so excited. As they said, they had a grade of kids go out and raise an amount of money from the local community that equated to $10 per kid. So let's say you're, you have 90 kids in the grade, they raise 900 bucks, knock on businesses, do fundraisers, bake sales, but they got to raise 900 bucks and they do it. They then give each kid their own budget of 10 bucks. Their challenge is with your own budget or working with classmates, forming teams with your combined budget, identify a way to make your community better, carry it out, and then present to the rest of your classmates what you did. Uh, you know, like I'm saying like, that is so cool. And you know, like, and if you just say, you know, like, Hopewell, Virginia, and they're doing it and it really works. And we're not saying every school in the country should do that, but we're saying if we can create this open source resource to highlight some of these great things, just as I try to do in my book and sort of make it okay. So maybe a teacher in Santa Cruz says, that's really interesting, but I've got a different way to go at that. Go for it. And what we're really saying is do it. And if it turns out to be great, do a video or tell us what you've done and maybe we'll give you a micro grant to film it. And we're starting to film these things from all over the country and just sort of show once you unleash the innovative capacities of our students and our teachers, amazing things can happen. And that it feels like, uh, Ted, that that is really the spark that you're trying to throw some gas on, isn't it? You're, you're really at the end of the day... Yes, you're framing the problem and the problem can get you pretty depressed if you get too overly focused on it. But the reality is you, you are shining a light on many, many teachers and many, many students and of course parents coming together to do innovative things, to have creative time, to be able to think, to be able to drive their own initiatives, to have agency, to come together. And in spite of the fact that they're anchored to a funding model that is outdated and anchored to a testing model that is completely fucking asinine. Uh, in spite of all those things, they're not waiting for the man or the woe man or the system to change. They're just going for it in these local communities and making it happen. Diving in, you know, getting comfortable with, you know, people ask me what I think one of the most essential competencies a kid can have coming out of school. And I say being comfortable diving into ambiguity. And it sounds so obscure, but you know, you know from your world, right? It's it's that rare kid today, rare adult that will say, I'm not exactly sure how this will play out, but I've got my instincts that I can make this into something positive. I'm diving in. And you know, like if kids get comfortable with that instead of running from it, you know, and that's my beef with standardized education. I mean, if you take an AP course, there's not one scintilla of ambiguity, to use an SAT word, there's not one scintilla of ambiguity from day one to day 180. But if you just say it will, you can figure this out because guess what? When they're out of school and in the adult world, it's going to be nothing but ambiguity. There will be infinite opportunities and challenges around something you were doing stopped working and now you got to figure out something new. And I say, why not let kids get good at it in the safe environment of, you know, K through 12, instead of letting them flail with that when they're out of work in 35 or 50 or whatever. And and so- that's you know, it. I talked about this. Like when you started this initiative, you didn't know you were going to go to every state. It, it sort of happened accidentally and there was tons of ambiguity around it. And I'm sure there's tons of ambiguity around this, this mission you find yourself on around education. I relate to it myself. You know, people ask me all the time with my podcasting and writing, well, what's the end game? What are you doing here? 
I don't fucking know what I'm doing here. I'm not even 100% sure I could. I mean, I could give you an answer, but I don't. The truth is, I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm just no, no. It and I'm and, doing it. And that's part of the journey. When, once people start to realize that the false starts, that, the, that what might appear to be a waste of time actually brings with it a fair amount of learning. You know, and, and we're all, you know, you just have to get used to the fact that not everything you try to do is going to work. I mean, like, I was lucky most of my venture investments work, but, but certainly in the venture industry, two-thirds fail. You know, I backed some films that were great, and I backed some films that were duds. I've given seed money to some things that took off and seed money to things I just shake my head and say, what the heck was I thinking? But, you know, if you can do things in a safe, informed way where the downside is fairly limited, where you know that it's going to get you to a different place and you'll figure out something else then. And, and I would say that, and, and then turn it into more and turn it into more and turn it into more. And I'd say if we equip kids with that, you know, like, like in a school, we're more aligned with that. You just imagine where our country would be if we had millions of kids leaving school each year, kind of full of enthusiasm and purpose, able to learn on their own and be able to just really adapted, identifying ways they can make their world better and going at it and just not taking no for an answer. I, you know, like, man, it would be the best of all times for a country. The flip is, and what, what really motivates me is if you have a bunch of kids coming out of school each year, you know, good, bad, or indifferent at memorizing material, replicating instructions, you know, replicating procedures and following instructions, they're sitting ducks for machine intelligence. So I, I find it like, that's what I find so interesting about this is if it were definitely going to be a screw up, I do something else with my life. If it were definitely going to be fine. I do something else with my life. That's where life's interesting, right? Where you're like, who the hell knows? You're like, maybe it'll work out. Maybe it won't. <laughs> but hey, that seems like a fun thing to spend your life on. <laughs> yeah. And one way or another, as Annie sang to us, the sun will come up tomorrow. <laughs> we hope. <laughs> we hope. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? No, well, just a big thank you to you. I mean, you're doing incredible work. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I just, when, when I talk to somebody like you, it just gives me incredible faith because, you know, your story about school, which is not front and center here, but, you know, you shared it with me. And it's like, these are, these are the people our world needs, right? I mean, these are the people that, that, we just need to make sure they're not getting a message in school that they don't have enormous potential. And, and so hearing that from you just gives me that much more energy going forward. So I really appreciate your, uh, your having me on. And this has been an incredible conversation. Well, Ted, I, I can't thank you enough. As I was reading your book, and I know this is going to sound corny. I don't give a shit. I just kept sitting there going, wow, I'm so glad Ted exists. I'm so glad you did this work. As an author, I know what a commitment writing a book is. Going to every state. And, and I mean, you, it's so clear that you care deeply about trying to get this. I don't know, right is not the right word. But you were trying to do something very substantive, very special, and shine light on things that aren't being really talked about. And I just, I just I have to take my hat off to you. You know, as a guy that had an incredibly successful um, uh, venture capital career, to sort of say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm good with all that, and I know you still do things and whatever, whatever, but I'm now gonna go do some other things and 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 use the position that I've created for myself in my life 
to kind of deal with them, some bigger things than just me and ma- making money from my partners and investors and the like. I just, I think it's wonderful that you've done this. And I, I, I really, somewhere early in the book, you write something to the effect of how every author thinks that everybody should read their book. And I think everybody should read your book. <laughs> well, I, I hope they do. It's, it's done well, but, uh, you know, it, 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 you know, I do deeply believe that, that the future of civil society, I mean, I've got kids that are 23 and 21. I think if we get this right, you know, they'll go on and have great lives in a country that does just, you know, amazing things. But I think if we get this wrong, it is a situation fraught with peril. And so the stakes are incredibly high. And, uh, you know, we, we know what to do. You know, the, the, the raw ingredients are there. The, the kids have enormous potential and can be really inspiring. Our teaching force is really dedicated. We just have to get out of our own way and stop screwing things up. And so, um, so you know, it's, 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 you know, as I started to phase out a venture, I took up golf. You know, golf is better off for my quitting golf and doing this because at least here, you know, when I write a book, I'm not chasing it in the march or, march of the woods and spending 20 minutes and can't find it. You know, so, so it's, it's, a, it's been for me a good, you know, good thing to do. And it's been really, uh, people say it must be really fun. I wouldn't call it fun, but it's, it's quite rewarding. And it's, it's really an honor to be around a lot of people very committed to important things. And so particularly, I mean, honestly, I went into it not really having a firm point of view about our teaching force. And people just have no idea how deeply committed they are to their kids and, and the kinds of things they deal with. So, so if I'm doing anything, I think it's only on the shoulders of a bunch of teachers that, that don't get, they didn't have stock options and carried interest and things like that. They, they, they're out there not paid enough, not given enough trust and respect. And, and you shine a light on so many, I mean, countless stories of legendary teachers doing legendary things that, you know, didn't didn't have the voice, and certainly didn't have the kind of platform um, that a guy like you has to 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 shine that light. And um, you know, that may be your greatest gift of all. Well, I, I try. So awesome! Thank you, Ted. Yeah, I'll come see you in Santa Cruz. I would love to. You're always welcome here. Yeah. I'd love to have you back on the podcast down the line. Anytime you have something on your mind, you want to get off your mind, you're welcome back. I think you've got a wonderful brain and I really deeply appreciate this work you're doing. Uh, I, I look forward to a beer on the pier. That's what we'll do. I'm in all day. <laughs> okay, good. Drinking on a pier. <laughs> yeah, thanks again. Thanks, Ted. There he is, the legendary Ted Dintersmith. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. All right. We would like to thank Ted and his new book, What School Could Be. It's fantastic. Pick up a copy wherever you pick up legendary books. My friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one, LifeFullyLive.org. GrowWire.com. It's what legendary entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial people are reading. Go check it out. GrowWire.com. Now, is it time to scale yourself? then why not check out my friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants and leverage the power of a virtual assistant to get more shit done in your life. Check out bottleneck.online today. That's bottleneck.online. Now, if you were to ask your people, do they think your company's awesome? What would they say? My friends at Socrates are the the leading digital conversation hub. And they want to help you make your company employee awesome. Check out Socrates.ai. That's S-O-C-R-A-T-E-S dot A-I today to become employee awesome. 
All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and all rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this oddcast gets created in a studio that does contain nuts. Remember to make learning legendary, support your local teachers and schools, don't forget to buy John's crazy socks, listen to Blondie, don't be lame, get out of the passing lane. As a matter of fact, in many states in the United States of America, it's illegal to go slow in the passing lane. <laughs> Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Richard C. Kelly, chairman of PG&E. Sorry, Dick, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Uh, stay legendary. And of course, until we're together again, follow your difference.